Get ready, Dr. Todd Miles on the topic of complementarianism. This is the talk that you're about to listen to that he gave to the women of Henson and even some other churches on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago. A bunch of women were really encouraged by it and they said, I think the men should listen to this too. So guys, don't miss out. Listen to Todd. Uh, we are going to continue to explore this topic, both on this podcast and the upcoming topical sermon series that Michael is planning on doing this spring. So this will just be a primer for that because Todd wasn't able to go super in depth because of time constraints, but hope you are edified and helped by this episode. Anytime that you teach or preach, you're supposed to hook your audience with like a clever story or illustration. So here's, here's my attention getter. We're going to talk about men's and women's roles. <laughs> okay, enough said on that. So do, do I have your attention on this? Um, let me say just four, four quick things at the outset that are not on the handout at all, um, just but so, so you know where I'm coming from here. Uh, the first thing is this, is, is I recognize, it's, it's patently obvious to me that I'm staring out at nothing but ladies, and I'm like the only guy in, in the room. And I'm going to stand up here and, and, and teach about what the Bible has to say about men and women. Um, I recognize that that probably seems a little weird. Um, I also recognize that this issue is deeply personal. So, I'm, and I don't have any explanation or any apology or anything for that. I just, I just, I just want you to know that I recognize that it is, that it is. So, so, so that's the first thing I wanted to say. Um, the second thing here is that I also recognize that, that what the Bible has to say, thankfully, is, is oftentimes countercultural. And that's very much the case when it comes to this issue. Probably 50 years ago, there wouldn't have been a discussion like this. Uh, but we don't live in the 1950s or the 1850s or the 1750s or the go on back, right? We live in 2022. And so, um, what, what I have to say about this, I also recognize it runs deeply countercultural. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily right or necessarily wrong. Uh, the, the determination of what is right or wrong is going to come from the, the scriptures, and that's what I hope to open up for you tonight. I, I'm going to try to be as fair as I can to the position or positions that I disagree with. Um, but... Uh, I, I am convinced, though, that, that what the Bible has to teach on this issue is actually very clear. Um, this is not a hard one. There's lots of really difficult theological issues out there. I really don't think this is one of them. That doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean the, that the application is not complicated. But in terms of what the scriptures say, I think this is fairly clear. Um, and so, because of that, I'm not ashamed of what I'm about to say to you, okay? Um, so, it, you can balance that with the, I know this is deeply personal, but, um, but also, I'm really not ashamed by, uh, about this at all. If, if what I say is what the scriptures actually teach, and we know that God is good, then what I'm going to be saying tonight is good, and it's to be celebrated, and we should be excited about it. Um, so, so that's the that's the third thing, and then the fourth thing is um, I'm going to run through a lot of Bible 
here tonight. And hopefully I can do that in a, in a winsome and clear way. And we can draw some prescription from that. That our, our, our consciences, our, our behaviors, our attitudes should be bound by the word of God because he is God, right? Um, my personal experiences and, and the way that I live this out, I don't really want to bind your conscience to that. Now, we'll talk application, and I'm totally happy to explain to you, especially when we get to the Q&A time, how this fleshes out in, in, in the Miles household, and then at Hinson Church, uh, what, what we do here. Uh, I'm totally happy to, to do that. I, I just want you to know that our, our consciences need to be bounded by Scripture, not Todd's application of it. Okay? Does that, does that sound okay? All right. Okay, so let's just dive right in to this. Um, there's, there are two significant positions out there when it comes to men's and women's roles, and, and they are complementarianism and egalitarianism. And so I have a little chart there for you, and I gave you the definition of both. And, and, and I just kind of made this up. I, I, I don't have, I'm not quoting anybody, but I think it's accurate. Um, from a complementarian perspective, the, the, the teaching is this, that God created male and female can we just assume we know what a man is and what a woman is for tonight? Is that fair? Okay, good. Um, so God created male and female equal in essence and dignity, but with different and complementary roles. Okay, so, so that's, that's the complementarian position. That one has been the teaching in the church for as long as there has been a church. Okay, um, The egalitarian position sometimes called evangelical feminism, you'll hear that term as well, uh, is, is this. God created male and female equal in essence and dignity, so the exact same thing. But the difference here is that because they're equal in essence and dignity, therefore they have equal access at least to all of the roles. There is no necessary differentiation in roles between a man and a woman, aside from the obvious that, that women are mothers and, and bear children, and men are fathers, and they don't bear children. So th there's clear biological differences that contribute to roles. But in terms of authority and leadership, especially in the home and in the church, the egalitarian position is, is because you're equal in essence, you have to have the same roles, or at least the same access to roles. That, that it, it is impossible it is impossible to have equality of essence with differentiation of role. That's, that's the egalitarian position, okay? Does, does, does that make sense in terms of just the two positions there? And so um, in, in creation, and we, we see this in Genesis chapter one, and there's really not a huge difference uh, between the complementarian and egalitarian position, uh, at least initially, we have in, in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Okay, so, so what it is to be human, male and female, they share that equally. There is no second-tier status for men, no second-tier status for women. If, if you are a human being, you are created in the image of God, male or female, and there is an equal dignity equality of essence that is attached 
to that. Now, again, um, what, what the complementarian is going to say at creation is that there is a differentiation of roles, however. It is possible, the complementarian would say. And, and so I would say, I think the Bible is going to teach. I'm going to endeavor to demonstrate that to you from Genesis 1 and 2, um, that it is possible, and, and even it's this way by design, that, that there is equality of essence between male and female, and, and there's a differentiation of roles as well, okay? Um, however, from the egalitarian position, again, just in creation, there is no differentiation of roles apart from the biologically obvious things, okay? Uh, so, 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 so that's creation, both sides agree, equal in essence, equal in dignity. One side, complementarians would say, there is a designed differentiation of roles. The egalitarian would say, at creation, there was no differentiation of roles. So where does role differentiation come from? Because we see that all through human history, right? Um, well, that's, that's a result of the fall. And so from an egalitarian perspective, so this is on the right, the right side of this um, chart that I have there. From an egalitarian perspective, roles are a result of the curse. There, there were no roles before, but afterwards there is. And so if you remember from Genesis chapter 3, and maybe some of you have a Bible there in front of you, uh, we, we find when God is cursing the serpent first, and 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 then he goes to the curses on the woman. What does he say in verse 16 of chapter 3? This is following the sin of, of, of Adam and Eve. God said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And so to the egalitarian, that's evidence that this, this patriarchy or this, this male headship, that that is a result of the fall. That's a result of the fall. And so if you have a box there, you can just say that, that humanity was cursed with roles. That's the egalitarian position. The complementarian position would say, no, no, no. <laughs> there already were roles prior to this. And I'll, I'll try to explain why here in a second or how I get that from the scriptures. Um, but the roles themselves were cursed. The roles were cursed. And so when, when God says to the woman, I'll your, uh, I will intensify your labor pains, you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. God is saying that in this broken, cursed world, the relationship between men and women is going to be fractured. And it's going to be difficult and hard. And to, to which we all say, amen. That's like, that's like very obvious, right? Um, so the, the big difference here, again, complementarians, the roles themselves were cursed, egalitarians. We were cursed with roles, okay? And then in, in, in redemption, Jesus Christ comes, brings about this great salvation, and, and begins to, to write everything. And of course, the, that's not going to be completed until Jesus returns. But, but in salvation, what God does is he begins to undo all of the, the mess and all of the cursing on this creation and on people as well. And so um, in the, there's a, a passage in Galatians chapter 3, uh, which is oftentimes referred to as the, the, uh, the feminist or the egalitarian Magna Carta, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. 
Uh, so, so Paul says here, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so in, in salvation or in redemption, from an egalitarian perspective, they look at Galatians 3.28 and they say, see uh, that in Christ, that all of those roles have been done away with. All the roles have been done away with. Now, again, they're not like, silly in saying that, you know, they, they recognize that, <laughs> that, that women still bear children and men don't. Women are mothers, men are our fathers. Uh, but in terms of leadership and authority, this is, this is the big issue here. In leadership and authority, Jesus has leveled the playing field back to where it was before. Jesus came to wipe away sin and the effects of sin. And because the, the roles were a result of the curse, Therefore, Jesus has done away with those roles. That's the egalitarian position. The, the complementarian position, as we'll see here, is, is that, um, again, there, there's agreement. Jesus came to do away with sin and the effect of sin, but the roles themselves were cursed. And what, and what Jesus Christ does in redemption is he uh, sanctifies and purifies and, and cleanses and reconciles to where before there was this, this good relationship between the husband and the wife, between men and women, um, and, and yet it has been distorted and ruined because of the, the fall. Now it is, it, it is uh, rectified, and, and the, the roles of themselves, again, are, are purified as they were before the fall. So though, that's the, or those two are the main, the main positions. Um, what I'd like to do now is, is to run through like the whole entire Bible <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and, and make the case first off that, uh, that, that the complementarian position is correct in, in that, there, that there were roles before the fall and those roles themselves were cursed rather than humanity was cursed with the roles. And so I'd like to, to start there. Um, the, the, first, the first thing we see, though, in this is, is what is very, very important, um, is, is that there is an equality of essence and dignity. I already read Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, but men and women are created imago Dei, in the image of God. We both have this. So here's my definition of image of God. I didn't put this on your page, but the, the, the image of God is the amazing ability and awesome responsibility to make visible our invisible God and Lord. It is the amazing ability and awesome responsibility to, to basically represent God. That's what an image bearer is. That's what an image bearer does. Um, and, and, and that is both male and female. That is very, very clear. There's no differentiation in terms of like status or, or, or ability or, or anything like that. Male and female share equally image of God. But there is, I think, some, some evidence of role differentiation even before the fall. And, and the first thing is this, and it, it sounds weird in our culture, but in the biblical culture it wasn't, was, was that God created Adam first and then he created the woman. And, and the reason I know this is actually a thing is because the Apostle Paul, later on, makes this very point. And we'll look at that later in 1 Corinthians. But, but God created Adam first, and then after that, he creates the woman. Second, at least in terms of the narrative there, we have God giving Adam the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then, when, there's sin, when sin happens... 
What does God do? He comes looking, but who does he call? He calls for Adam. Adam, where are you? What has happened? There's some sort of responsibility that's given to Adam, even though we know from reading it that the serpent goes to the woman, and then the woman goes to the man. But, but, but when God comes looking, it's Adam. Where are you? What has happened? And then, of course, Adam throws Eve under the bus. And even obliquely God, right? It was the woman you gave me. So it's not my fault, it's her fault. And it's your fault too, because you gave that woman to me. Whereas just seconds before, at least as we're reading it in the Bible, God, God, is, or God gives Adam this incredible helper and Adam breaks into song. It's like a Broadway musical, right? It's like poetry. Oh, this at last, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, right? Um, and, 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 and that's the third one on the list there, is that God created Eve to be the helper to Adam. I'm just, I'm kind of going in order as you read, see it in Genesis chapter 2. God created Eve to be the helper to Adam. Now, that does not mean second-tier status at all. Because that, that Hebrew word for helper is Ezer. And, and, and do you know who is identified as an Ezer multiple times through the Old Testament? God himself. So, 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 so being a helper is, is hardly second tier. But we do have this, this thing where, where God looks out and, and he, he, he's, he looks at Adam. He looks at the man. And for the very first time when he's like contemplating what he has made, he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. Now, up to this point, if you're reading through Genesis, everything God makes, his appraisal of everything he has made is, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. So this is weird when he looks at the man and says, this is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then... Uh, just to, to reinforce the point to Adam, I think, of how wonderful God is for what he's about to do, he parades all of the animals in front of Adam. And, and Adam gets some work done, right? He names the animals. But, but I think that's just uh, like a, a, a collateral bonus thing, the naming the animals. I think the main point is that Adam would realize there's no one like me. And so God knew that Adam was alone. And by the time Adam's done naming the animals, he definitely knows that he, he's alone. There was no one like him, we're told. No one like him, it says in, in Genesis chapter 2. And so God makes someone who is like him. He takes from the man and makes the woman. And, uh, and, and Adam is, is blown away. As I said, it's like he breaks into song. I, I know that because at least it shows up as poetry on, on my Bible. I think your Bible translators think that. Uh, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. And, and, and that's another point that the Apostle Paul is going to make later, that the woman was made for the man from the man. Then, then, when Genesis 3 happens, what, what's the order of things? What we're told in Genesis 1 and 2, is, it seems to me, is, is, is that you have God who is the creator of all things. And all authority rests with God. I think that, that's clear from like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God makes an image bearer of himself. 
He makes two of them, actually, the man and the woman, creating the image of God to represent God here in this world that, that he has made. And gives to the man and the woman dominion over everything. Multiply, he tells the man and the woman. Exercise dominion. Basically, like this is my translation, take care of my stuff. Because it all belongs to God. And all authority belongs to him. And God says, now take care of it for me. Take care of my stuff. And so there's an authority that's there. We have God, and then we have the humans, and then we have the, the animals. And, and I would argue from this, the, the order of creation, and, and that Eve was made as a helper for the, for the man, that, that there's even a little bit of a hierarchy between the two humans. We have God, and then we have Adam and Eve, and then we have all the animals, including the creepy crawly things. And that's the guys that Satan takes when he comes to tempt. So, so our order here, God, the male, the man, the woman, the animals, Satan comes in the guise of an animal. And who does he approach? He approaches the woman. And, and he deceives the woman who then gives to the man. And by the time the whole mess is over, the man is blaming God for everything. It was the woman you gave me. Do you see how everything is just turned upside down? In, in this first sin. And so I think that's, that's what I mean by the servant. The servant, not serpent. It says servant, doesn't it? Serpent. <laughs> the serpent subverted God's pattern by tempting Eve rather than Adam. And then Adam ends up blaming God. Everything is upside down. So those are some of the, the, the hints or the whispers that I think the New Testament authors paid attention to when they wrote on the issue of how men and women to, were to relate in the home and, and in the church. And this works itself out in the rest of, of redemptive history. And by that, I mean like the rest of the Bible. It works itself out. Now, we have to recognize right off the bat that, that the biblical narrative, the, the, the scripture takes place in the Old Testament in the ancient Near East. And then the New Testament, the Greco-Roman Empire, it's strongly patriarchal, right? It's, it's a very patriarchal, male-dominated society, both of them. And, and, and that the society is this way is, I don't think it's, it's evidence one way or the other for, for, for complementarianism or egalitarianism. I think it's just the way that it was. Um, and, and the fact that the, the ancient Near East, all these other cultures were very patriarchal. I don't think that makes the case for anything. That's just how they're living. But when we look at the scriptures, what do we actually find? Well, we find that men, by and large, not without exception, but by and large, they tend to be the leaders. God uses Noah to save his image bearers and to continue his redemptive purposes. God gives promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Abraham is, is called a prophet. Now, their wives, we know their wives' names too because they were critical players. I would even go so far to say that, um, well, so we have Abraham and Sarah. And, and, and Sarah is a very, very strong woman. Abraham's a very strong man, right? Then we have... Um, Isaac and Rebecca, and then Jacob and Rachel. Jacob is a pretty strong character. Rachel and Leah are very strong characters too. Isaac and Rebecca, who's the stronger character? It's Rebecca, right? Isaac's super passive, right? Um, I remember reading a, a, a book that kind of told the story of the Bible, and, and, and you have, and, and each chapter was named after the key character, and it was like, 
Abraham, and then two chapters later, Jacob. But who was in between? It wasn't Isaac. It was Rebecca. Because she drives, she drives the storyline in there. Isaac's just passive. Things are done to him. But, uh, but, but Rebecca. So there's, there's strong women there. They play critical game-changing roles. But again, then later with God delivers his people through Moses. He delivers the law through Moses, who, who plays the role of a prophet. And God establishes the priesthood. And who were the priests in the family of, of Aaron and the tribe of Levi? It's the men. Joshua follows Moses as the leader. Now, again, Miriam plays a significant role. She plays a significant role. We have to, to recognize that. And, and, and Miriam is even a prophet as well, okay? And, and, and there's going to be ladies who are prophets in the, the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, that's, that raises the question of what prophecy is. I'll get to that here in just a second when we... Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll get there. We'll see. Um, God, God, so I'm just hurrying through the Bible storyline at this point. God, God delivers and kind of leads his people through the judges. I think we have to acknowledge that, that Deborah was a judge, wasn't she? Um, but, but even in that narrative, when there's a, a call for a general to lead the army out and, and, and the general says, I'm not sure that I want to go unless you go, Deborah. Deborah says, okay, that's fine, but know this. The glory for the battle's going to go to a woman. And she wasn't talking about herself, right? Um, God delivers and leads his people through the kings. There were, of course, significant game-changing queens, both good and bad. Well, most of them were bad, just like most of the kings were bad. So, but uh, God speaks to his people through the prophets. God promises that a son will be born, a son of David who will inhabit an eternal throne forever. And then Jesus, the son of God, he's a man. He calls disciples at a variety of levels. He has like a couple close, two or three really close one, Peter, James, John. And then there's, you know, maybe a little outer circle within the, the, the circle of disciples. Um, but they're men, the primary circle, the 12 disciples were men. Now, again, Jesus had female disciples as well. They were, and patrons, those who supported him and who were loyal and with him. And that was significant. And the, the narrative, the biblical narrative, it turns on the roles of, of Mary, Jesus's mom, Mary, Lazarus' sister, Mary, Magdalene. How many Marys are there? Jeez. Martha, Lazarus' sister. These are all very significant women in the in, in the narrative. So there is a dignity and there's a place, a game-changing place for women in the Jesus stories. At the same time, the 12 were men and the apostles, they were men. It does raise the question, were there female apostles? It appears that there was a kind of apostle that, there, that was shared by both men and women. And, and to me, it, it this is, again, this is a debated sort of thing. Actually, I don't know that anything I've said is debated up to this. This is the first time this debated. Were there actually female apostles? It, it, it seems to me that, that there were, but there's two kinds of apostles. There's like capital A apostles who are laying the foundation for the church. And then there's apostles sent out ones doing cross-cultural ministry and missionaries and that sort of thing. I, I think it's entirely possible that there could have been women like that. What's evident, though, is that of these like capital A apostles, these super, sometimes they're called super apostles as we talk about them. They were all men. They were all men. 
And then the elders of the early church, they were all men as well. Women played a vital role in the early church. They're named as ministers and deacons and patrons and hosts or hostesses, I suppose. Think of someone like Lydia. You have Priscilla, who, who appears to be doing some very significant discipleship of one of like the greatest first century non-apostle teachers, Apollos. And then both men and women are named as prophets or prophetesses in the early church. We see that in Acts chapter 21, verse 9. Okay, so why do I go through this? Because I think that in God's story, in redemptive history, we see evidence of both equality of essence and dignity with role differentiation. The role differentiation is not men do all the important stuff when it comes to redemption and women don't, you know, women are like keeping house or something. That's, that's, I shouldn't have said it that way because keeping house is very important. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know what I meant to say, be charitable with me here. Uh, you, you, you know what I meant to say by that. Um, we don't have that. We have, we have men and women playing significant roles, but there's evidence of role differentiation as well. Uh, that, that goes on here. So that's, that's the biblical storyline, it seems to me. And then the New Testament teaching backs up what I just said. It backs up what I just said, that there is significant <laughs> dignity and place for women in the church and in redemptive history, but there are some roles that are reserved for men. And, and, and that's, that's what we get here. So, okay. So what I'd like to do for the next 30 minutes is I'm going to spend like five minutes just highlighting the big controversial passages. But, but again, and, and, and I know <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to be as fair as I can. Hopefully nothing that I say, people would say, oh no, that's not fair. You're not being fair to, to my side. I, I recognize that what I'm just, what I'm about to say right now, some would disagree with, but I'm still convinced this is true. I think the biblical teaching on this is very easy. Easy to interpret, not necessarily easy to live out. But in terms of the exegesis and the biblical interpretation, what does this passage actually mean? I honestly think it's pretty clear. And, and, and I think the problem that egalitarians are always going to have, okay, so this is Todd speaking as a complementarian. The problem that egalitarians are always going to have is they have to try to convince people that what the Bible appears to say, it doesn't actually mean. And that's going to be a problem. That doesn't mean you can't do that. You can't do it. <laughs> right. But, but anyway, okay. So let's go to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3.28. What does this passage mean? I earlier said to you that egalitarians, this is like the, 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 the Magna Carta of, of egalitarianism. Galatians 3.28. Well, let's go, we'll start even verse 27. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. The whole entire book of Galatians really asks this question, who are the true children of Abraham? Who are the true children of the promise? And of course, Paul started these churches in Galatia. They were very, very important to him. But then some people came in and said, hey, this is awesome that you have just accepted the Jewish 
Christ, Jesus, to be the Messiah. But if you really want to be children of Abraham, if you really want to be children of the promise, you have to become Jewish by at least submitting to circumcision and obeying other parts of the law that we want you to obey. And and Paul says, no, no, no. Over and over and over again, he has the same message. You are equal in Christ Jesus. That is, everyone, Jew and Gentile, has equal access to redemption because that is what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's what he's done in Jesus Christ. The gospel brings together what used to divide Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. All have equal access to redemption. All you have to do is believe the gospel in order to be saved. But I don't, I, I, that's, that's the burden of Paul throughout this. I, I don't think that it's saying we wipe away role distinctions any more than it wipes away gender distinctions or economic distinctions. Those things are still out there. It's just that when, when it comes to, can I be saved? Can I become an heir of the Abrahamic promise? Can I be reconciled to God and others? Then for the first time, for the first time in redemptive history, there's a path for Jews and Gentiles. Before it was just a path for Jews. There's a path for, for those who are rich and those who are poor. And there's a path for male and female. There's no waiting, you know, waiting outside of the gate of the temple where only the men could go in. You don't have that anymore. Not, not in Christ. So I, I think that's what's going on in Galatians 3. That's his burden throughout the entire book. How can we be heirs of the Abrahamic promise? The true heirs are those who believe the gospel through faith in Christ. Okay, that's Galatians 3. If you have questions about that, write them down. We'll come to, we, can, we can talk through it. Ephesians 5. Flip over to Ephesians 5. Let's start, let's start in verse, oh, we have to start in verse 18. That's where the sentence starts. Okay, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So, so there's the verb submit. And then Paul says, he gets down to how this is supposed to look in the different kinds of relationships that are found even within the church. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The, the verb submit isn't actually there. It's just, so wives, do this to your husbands. Submit to, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So the, the, the verb is actually found in verse 21. It's just assumed in verse 22. That's why... It's, uh, it's written there in, in our English translations. Why? Why? Okay, so, so wh what is submit? Well, uh, submit is, uh, there's no niceifying it <laughs> or making it gentler. Uh, it, it's actually a military term. And so, yeah, it, it means submit. Um, and then 
submit to your husbands as you would to the Lord. And again, remember the very first thing I said here? I, I know that this is personal, and I also recognize that I'm a guy here. And so here I am staring out at a bunch of ladies and saying, ladies, you got to submit to your husbands. Um, I'm not going to tell you how to do that other than recognize this, that, that this submission, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, I will say this. Um, submission isn't just agreeing to do that which you wanted to do all the time anyway. That's, that's really not what submission is. I think submission can, is, is more uncomfortable than that. It often means not doing what you wanted to do, but doing instead what your husband says he, he wants to do. I don't think it's a simple matter of do this or don't do that. I think it's more a disposition. It's more a, a, a life that is lived. That's all I'm going to say about that. If, and, and, and so let me go on here, verse 23. And then I'll tell you, if I was talking to a bunch of guys, I'd be far more in their face. And th this is what I would say. Verse 23. Okay, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So Paul is making a parallel between Christ's headship of the church with, with the husband's headship of the wife. Now, there's, big, there's controversy on what that word head means. Um, let me tell you what it always means, and then I'll tell you what it occasionally means. It always means, always means authority over. There are no examples in the Bible or in, or in extra biblical Greek literature where that Greek term means anything other than authority over. Sometimes it also means, in addition to what we would think of like the headwaters, the source the source of something. But even when it can mean source, it also means authority. Um, and, and I think in, in context, that would make sense for us because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Yes, it's true. Christ is the source of the church, but I have no idea how I'm the source of my wife, Camille. I, I, I just, I don't know how that, how that could possibly be. Um, I, I think that's a good question to ask. How can a husband be the source of their wife? Now, there's other things in here we'll see that the husband can do that Jesus does for the church. Um, and, so, and, and Jesus is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. We are to submit to one another in ways that are appropriate, given our relationships and the roles that we have. I think that's what Paul is saying in verse 21. And then to illustrate that, he goes into the husband-wife relationship, and he's going to go on with children and parents and then slaves and masters after that. Um, now, if I were... If, 
if I were talking to a group of men, this is what I would tell them. Okay. And you can decide whether you want to tell your husbands this or not. <laughs> I would say to the men here, I would say, men, you have no submission card. You have no submission card to play. Because the minute you try to pull a submission card, then it's not really submission anymore because submission is about the disposition of the one who is submitting to you. And when you pull the submission card, which you don't actually have, you're coercing and you're bullying. Men, it is not your responsibility to get your wives to submit. Your responsibility, the only thing you can hold yourself responsible for is, am I sacrificially loving my wife? And what's the standard? Jesus Christ and the church. Now, that is a ridiculous standard. That is an unattainable standard. Nevertheless, I don't think Paul blushed when he said it. That's your responsibility. Now, in the same way, ladies, it's not your responsibility to get your husband to sacrificially love you. Okay? You, you, you can't take responsibility for that. You can't, you can't hold yourself accountable for that. You can only hold yourself accountable for what you do and what your disposition is. That's what I would say to men. You don't have a submit card. I had a pastor who, who once told me that or in, in, a, in a teaching, he, he said, yeah, when, when we first got married, I said, I told my wife, hey, this is what we're going to do. And she said, I don't want to do that. And he said, well, you have to because you're my wife. And, and she said, I'm not going to do it. And he said, he said, yeah, you are. And she said, no, I'm not. And he said, yes, you are. And she said, or, or else. He said, or else. It's like he's pulling the submission card, or else. And then, and then she said, or else what? And it dawned on him. He didn't know. <laughs> so he phoned a friend. Hey, I just, I just pulled the or else card, the submission card. I just played it, but I don't know what it says. What does it say? And my friend said, you dummy. <laughs> you don't have a, you don't have, there is no or else. There is no or else. Not, 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 not in the relationship between the, a husband and a wife. Your responsibility is to sacrificially love your wife. That's, that's the only card you can play. It's the only card you can play. So anyway, you, ladies, you can tell your husbands that if you want. That's what I would tell them. That's what I would tell them. There's also, uh, remember Genesis 1-1, all authority comes from God. And so any authority that we have as humans is a delegated authority, which means that it's, it's, it's circumscribed by God's character. And, and any exercise of authority that we have, men, women, parents, whatever, any exercise of authority, if it's to be a legitimate exercise of that authority, it has to be done according to the character of God. And any time that we exercise our authority in an abusive way or, 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 or direct those that we have authority over to do something that is contrary to the will of God, we have gone outside of the authority that God has delegated to us, and, and, and it's, it's illegitimate at that point. And so I, I don't know what kind of, of experiences you have with abusive leadership or, or, or people telling you to do things that you're not comfortable with. Uh, do, not, do not violate your conscience. Do not, do not sin against God by violating your conscience. You are not required to submit to a, an individual who is directing you to do something contrary to, his, to God's law. And, 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 and I would include your conscience in that as well. 
Okay, that's all I'll say about that. Um, oh, I, I would say this too. Um, I got one more thing here. This, this husband-wife relationship, the relationship between the, the husband and the wife, I, I do think that it's a general revelation of the gospel. Um, because Paul says this one flesh relationship, it's a profound mystery. Now, all through Ephesians, the mystery has been how on earth can Jews and Gentiles be one in the body of Christ? Or, I'm sorry, one in God's people. There's no mechanism in Judaism to do that. And yet a bunch of the Old Testament prophets started hinting at that. And they started anticipating that and predicting it. One day, Jew and Gentile together in the people of God. And Paul says, if that was a mystery, but let me reveal it to you. It's the gospel. Jesus Christ brings Jews and Gentiles together. That's how it is. And so when he says mystery here, it's the same thing. He's been talking about mystery the whole entire time. And it's our unity in Christ, unity in the people of God through the work of Jesus. And so, and, and then he says, even this one flesh relationship from Genesis 2, where the husband and the wife become one flesh, he goes, that's a profound mystery. But I say it refers to Christ in the church. Do you know what that means? It means that the gospel is logically prior to marriage, at least in God's mind. God looks at Adam, and yes, it is not good the man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. But he's got the gospel in his mind, and he says, I'm going to get some work done and help Adam rectify the situation, but I'm going to give the world a picture of the gospel. That's how important this husband-wife relationship is. And, and I would also say that's, how, that's why marriage is not just this kind of cultural thing that we do, and, and we can redefine it as we want to. Marriage is worth hanging on to for the sake of the lost. So they can see, they get a picture of how much Christ loves the church when they see a man sacrificially loving his wife, and they see how much the church loves Christ when they see a woman respecting her husband. Okay, so there's that. Okay, yeah, these are easy, aren't they? First Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two. How much longer do I got, Mary Alice? What's that? You sure? Okay. All right. I can, I can do that, I think. First Timothy chapter two. Okay, so this is like the mother of all difficult passages for us, but let's just do it, okay? Um, Help if I was in First Timothy, not Second Timothy. So, so Paul says, we'll start in verse eight. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Paul then says in verse 12, and this is the, this is the one we'll spend some time on. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. Why? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. I think that passage is just so clear. We can just skip on to the next one now. 
Yeah. Um, okay. So what's the context? So, what's, what's Paul? so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy is his protege in the church. I think that Paul cares more about than any other church that he had, the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was like this place where Paul camped out for a long time, and it was like this sending church. And, and, and Paul, I think, hand-selected Timothy to take his role. Timothy is going to be the pastor of this church that is so dear to, uh, to Paul. And so he writes First Timothy, and in verse 315, it's really all about how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul is, or, sorry, Timothy is this young pastor. Here's how you do your job. Here's how people are to comport themselves, to get along, to, to, to do things in the household of God. Well, men, you're to pray without anger or quarreling. Women, there's, there's a few other things on there. Uh, we we find we find that a lot. There's especially with especially with young men. Uh, Paul would give like one instruction to young men. He'd give like five or six instructions to everyone else. Um, and and with young men, it was like be be self-controlled. Just 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 be self-controlled. Uh, you know, for for older men, older women, younger women, there's a whole bunch of things. But men, young men, uh, just be self-controlled. Here, kind of gets the same thing. Men pray and do so without anger, anger or quarreling, please. Please. And then women, adorn yourself with character. He's not saying don't wear clothes, don't wear jewelry. He's just saying the priority of your adornment should be your character, virtue, things of that nature. And then he says women are to learn. They, they are to learn. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I think that is significant. But, but then he gets here in, in verse 12. He says, but I don't, there's no but, just I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. What do I think this means? I'll just cut straight to the chase. I think what Paul is saying here is women are not to function as elders in the church. Now, why would I say that? Why would I say that? Because Paul in 1 Timothy 3 is going to give the qualifications for elders and the qualifications for deacons. And and if you look at what the qualifications for elder and deacon are, you'll find they fit almost like a hand in a glove if one of the gloves had six fingers. <laughs> uh, they don't quite match up, but they match up everywhere except for one thing. Elders are supposed to be able to teach. That's the difference between elders and deacons. Other than that, the qualifications are pretty much the same. They have to do with character. So what, what do elders do? Elders teach. Elders do a lot of things, but their primary tool as they're doing lots of things in the church is teaching teaching. And then as you work your way through 1 Timothy and then 2 Timothy, you find that the elders also have this leadership role. And the primary way that, they, way that they exercise their leadership is they do so through teaching. That's the main tool that they have. They've got a few more, but they aren't used near as much. Everything involves teaching. So Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. In the context, I think what Paul is saying here is, I don't permit a woman to function as an elder in the church. What do elders do? They teach authoritatively to the church, exercising authority over the church. And the primary way they do that is through their teaching. Primary way they do that is through their teaching. And then Paul justifies that by not allowing a woman to, or I'm sorry, by saying, you know, that Adam was formed first and Eve. And, and then he says, um, and, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. 
Some people have in the past have said, well, that's just because women are more deceivable. They're more gullible. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Paul is just saying, remember back in Genesis 3. Remember what happened. Everything was turned on its head. I think that's, that's, that's his main point there. And, and, and I think from experience, we know this is to be the case as well, um, that men are just as deceivable as women are. He's not making a statement here about men in general and women in general. He's making a specific point about remember the first sin, how everything was subverted. If you've talked to me at all about my own discernment and things like that, you you will know that I often tell people, if you add my wife's discernment to my discernment, you get Camille's discernment. Um, Because I, 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 I can be totally duped by people. I tend to be very, yeah, I mean, if, if you're nice to me, I think you're wonderful, and that's, that's it. Um, uh, my wife is a little more cynical than that. Um, or, I'm sorry, she exercises godly discernment. She has more godly discernment than that. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, so I, I think that's what's going on there. And then, and then in verse 15, you have this really clear teaching. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. I don't know precisely what this means, but I'll give you my best guess as to what's going on here. Um, Paul has already taken us back to Genesis 3 by, by reminding us about that first sin, about how everything was flipped over. But, but, but then he said, in, following that in Genesis 3, by, I'm sorry, let me get my pronouns right here. Um, then in Genesis 3, you have the cursing first on the serpent, and then on the woman, and then on the man. And and in that cursing, Satan is told that there's going to be a seed from the woman who is going to destroy you. You, the serpent, will bruise the heel of this, this baby to be born. But that baby to be born will crush the head of the serpent. And I, so there is a, a holy role at, for, for women in childbearing. And I'm not saying that every woman has to bear a child. That, that's not the point. But right off the bat, it tells us something about Satan and about what God is doing. Adam will later on name his wife Eve, which means what? The mother of all living. The mother of all living. Adam, Adam and Eve have just gone through this horrific thing. And it strikes me as a, a special kindness of the Lord that he starts with Satan and then goes to the woman and then goes to the man. Because Adam knew, and I think Eve knew too, that, if you, um, that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so when God shows up and they have eaten from that apple, and everything is wrong, right? They, they hide themselves from each other. Relational strife has entered already, right? And, and they have to be thinking, whoa, that didn't work out exactly as I planned it. And oh no, here comes the Lord. He doesn't come screaming, Adam! It's Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Adam and Eve are hiding from God and also have all taken steps to hide from each other. And, and they have to be thinking, we're not walking away from this alive. We're not going to make it. 
In God's kindness, he addresses the serpent first, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You went through her to try to destroy my plan. I'm going to go through her to destroy you. And in doing so, if Adam and Eve are there and they're listening, maybe they think, there's going to be a baby. I think we're going to walk out of this alive. I think we're going to make it. And so then, even after they've been removed from God's presence, what does Adam name Eve? Or he names her, he names Adam, he names Eve, Eve, the mother of all living, which I think is a statement of the faith of Adam and also Eve, that God's going to make good on his promise. God has told the serpent, I'm going to destroy you through the woman. And I, <laughs> and I, I think ever since then, there is, a, there is an enmity, a hatred that Satan has for women. He hates all image bearers. There's a particular way that he hates women. And I think right at this point, right at this point, God, and so now go back to first Timothy, Paul is saying, women, you're not to act or function as elders in the church. But then he, he takes us back to the garden and he reminds, he reminds the women who are listening to this letter that has been written to Timothy but there is a significant role that women play in redemptive history. And so I think that saved through childbearing is just taking us back to the role that women are going to play in the destruction of the evil one. And it wasn't just a prediction of there's going to be one woman one day who's going to have one baby. I, I think there's an elevation of the role of women, even though Satan thought, he could destroy God's plans by working and deceiving, or working through and deceiving the woman. Anyway, that's my interpretation of the passage. You can do with that what you want. Let me let's think about some other uh, passages here. Um, I, I, I do. I can't remember if I. Um, let me just argue with the egalitarians just a little bit here, and, and I'll tell you what how how egalitarians uh, treat this passage. Th they look at it and they say. Um, I know it says here that Paul does not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but really what's going on there is that Paul was just restricting women at that time in the church in Ephesus from teaching or exercising authority. And, and here's why I think that's, that's not the case. Um, because he goes back to creation order, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, so, so it's not just uh, the, the reason that Paul gives for not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority, that is not to function as an elder in the church, has nothing to do with what was going on at that particular moment. The reason he gives is because Adam was formed first, then Eve. He makes an appeal to creation order. Some people will say, you know what? At that point in time, there was this uh, cult of Diana where there were priestesses, and so then maybe some, some of the ladies there who were used to a significant role in that cult were coming to Christ, and they were teaching, and it was just creating a big mess. Some say that, that there were women who were false teachers. There were women who were false teachers. And so really what this passage means is, I do not permit false teaching in the church, because apparently there were some ladies there who were, who were 
teaching false doctrine. The problem with that is that Paul doesn't say that, number one. Number two, that would be a weird thing to say, oh, there's false teaching in the church. Women, no teaching. That'd be a strange thing, especially because number three, the only false teachers that we know of for sure who were teaching in Ephesus, and we know some of their names, they're all men. They're all men. The only false teachers that are listed in Ephesus in scripture, both in the book of Acts, look at Acts chapter 20, and, and then in, in Paul's letters to Timothy, they're all men. So, th- so the idea that, oh, you know, th- this was just one thing for one time, and there were women who were, who were teaching false doctrine, that it's just not backed up by what we find in Scripture. Yeah. Okay, so there's my argument uh, against, against that, that idea. Um, Acts chapter 20, Paul gathers the, the elders, and he calls, and they're all men. And they're literally called men. And he warns them that one day after I leave, men are going to arise from within you. They're going to come some from within you, and they will attempt to lead the church astray. So even after Paul is leaving in Acts chapter 20, he warns them there's going to be false teachers, but they're men who are false teachers, not women. Okay. So there's that. All right. Um, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Oh, uh, let me just say this. In in terms of of, of what we do at Hinson, then, um, the the elders are all men. The elders are all men. And and, and the kind of teaching that is done to the congregation, to the church at large, the church as a whole, it's it's done by um, elder qualified men. So that's just how that fleshes out in, at, at our church. Um, 1 Corinthians 11. I mentioned that, and then I didn't even turn there. 1 Corinthians 11. This is a very strange passage. It's about head coverings. He says, uh, well, uh, so first he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And he says this, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So this is his letter to the church in Corinth, and he's, he's encouraging them, which is different for 1 Corinthians. <laughs> um, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman or the wife. Uh, in Greek, woman and wife are the same word. So man, so, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers, uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. And then it goes on. Well, so, so, so then verse, okay, let me stop there. What's going on? Apparently, apparently there were, there it seems to me there must have been some sort of social tradition that is not apparently obvious to us, and, and it's not in the Bible. That is, there's no, like, theology of head covering that I can see. But, but it, at least in the culture, an, an appropriate deference was demonstrated by, by a head covering. And you can probably think of, of cultures where it's like that today around the world. Not, not in ours. I see a couple head coverings, but I don't know if that was meant in deference or just because it's like 37 degrees outside. Um, I'm, I'm guessing the latter. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but you can ask Ashley next week about that if you want. Um, 
Yeah, and so, and, but it appears that what's going on here is that people are showing up for worship and, and they're bucking all of the societal trends and they're showing up like as rebels to a worship service. I, I mean, I like a little rebellion, a little, but, but I, I think, uh, if, if I'm the one doing it. Um, but, but I'm pretty sure that a worship service is not the place. That's not the place, because as we find out here, God is a God of order. And, and so I think that's what's going on. I think that's what's going on here. Verse 7, then, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. So he's going back to that creation order again. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. So there's another reason. This is why woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I guess I'm backing away from this. This is all really clear, simple teaching, right? Yeah, that, that, I don't know what that means. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and a man is not independent of woman, for just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. And so, you know, there's, there's not a man that you've ever seen who didn't come from a woman, right? Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? That is, is it proper for a woman to pray with an open symbol or of defiance or the lack of a symbol of deference? And I think Paul's, it's like, it's a rhetorical question. No, that's not the place to be, you know, rebelling against society. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace, but if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory, for hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. And so there it goes. All right. What do I want to point out here? One, uh, the first man, first woman, the first woman came from the man and for the man. But ever since then, every, woman, every man comes from woman. Okay, so that's something. Also, I would point out this, um, that, that, that there are appropriate ways that are gender specific, it appears, at least at, at this church in Corinth, that, that when you showed up to worship, um, you, you ought to be appropriate. You have to be appropriate. So there's some sort of gender distinction that manifests itself in culturally appropriate ways. Okay? And, 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 and again, having an open spirit of rebellion, probably not the thing to do when you're walking through the doors of the gathered assembly to worship. Um, say, save that for some other time, if at all. And, and then third, it is interesting that women are praying and prophesying. Paul doesn't say women are not to pray and prophesy. He says they're not to pray and prophesy with their head uncovered. The assumption is that they're praying and prophesying. And I think this is, it's the custom. He says there, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. This is what people do in the church. It appears to me that Paul is saying there's going to be praying and prophesying that goes on in the gathered assembly by women, by women, which is why at St. Henson Church, you'll see uh, prayers of praise and scripture reading and those sorts of things that we're, we're, we, we have uh, women go up and, and do that. Um, it's, it seems to be a very appropriate thing that probably does raise the question, what's the difference between prophesying and teaching? Um, here's, so I'll tell you what I think it is. Um, prophecy, I believe, is direct discourse from God to humans mediated through the prophet. To where if you, so when a prophet is speaking prophetically, they're speaking the very word of God, and it should bind your conscience. To disobey or disbelieve the prophet is to disobey or disbelieve God. And there are women prophets in the Old Testament and women prophets in the New Testament. What are they doing? They are speaking the word of God. That's different, I think, than preaching and teaching where you are 
studying the scriptures, and then you are in a very authoritative way. As a, as there, there's delegated authority to the, to the elder, delegated authority that is exercised through the teaching and preaching of the word of God. I think those are two different things. And if you wanted me to flesh that out a little more, we, we could do that. So praying and prophesying, I think that's totally appropriate for women. I think we see that in the worship services at, at Hinson. Preaching, teaching, that's an elder task, and that's why the and, and, and that's why the elders do the preaching and teaching. You might think, I think prophecy is more authoritative than 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 preaching would be. And and to that I would say. Yes, kind of, but not because of the prophet, of, the, of authority within the prophet themselves. The prophet is like a vessel <laughs> through which the word of God is directly comes. There's a difference between saying, okay, you're an elder, you have authority, and therefore teach. How's that? Is that good? We can stop there. We can stop there. Oh, I had lots of really fun stuff to say about women being silent in 1 Corinthians 14. Let me just say this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, it says women are be silent in the church. I think that that has to do with the judgment of prophecies, which is an elder task. Apparently at the church in Corinth, there were like prophecy was going on because we, we didn't have the Bible at this point. And, and this is how God's word is getting out. There are prophets who were who speaking. They could be men or women, it appears, from 1 Corinthians. And, but apparently there was like people wanting, hey, I'm a prophet, I'm a prophetess, or I'm a prophet. And, and, and they were speaking out of turn. And some of them actually weren't speaking prophetically. They were just like baptizing their own impulses, right, in speaking. And Paul says, no, prophecies are to be judged before they are to be given to the entire church. And, that's, and it's that, at that point, Paul says that, that, that women are to be silent. I think he's talking about the judgment of prophecies. Again, that's an elder task. Clearly, he's not saying women have to be silent in church because he's already said they're praying and prophesying. So anyway, there you go. 